I'm sure if I were to ask you guys the question, how many of you want to be blessed? All right, I'm going to assume that 100% of the people are going to raise their hand, so I won't bother you to say, raise your hand if you want to be blessed, because I'm just going to assume everybody, there's probably nobody's, yeah, I'd rather live non-blessed. I'd rather live a cursed life. Yeah, that, that would be better. So I just hate all this blessing. It's just so wearisome. Today we come to the study of the Sermon on the Mount, or perhaps the Sermon on the Plain. We'll discuss that in just a little bit. But it is about living the the blessed life. It is about having a life that is blessed by God. It is a, a message to the disciples of Jesus about how to live out the reality of a, being a kingdom, a citizen of the kingdom of God. So, before we get going, let me give you just a quick uh, review of where we've been. We've been studying in the book of Luke, but we last week we hit kind of a new section. It's a rather large uh, section. And a number of things have been happening. Up until now, we've been looking at the person of Jesus Christ, who He is and what He does. Now, along with who He is and what He does, um, in, in the section that we're going to be looking at, is one of the things that Jesus does is He prepares people to take up His ministry after He's gone. See, Jesus realizes that, well, um, He is... His popularity is increasing. He also realizes that hostility towards him is increasing and that uh, ultimately his mission is the cross and that he will be crucified, he will be buried, he will raise on the third day and he will ascend back to heaven. And because of that, he is going to train individuals, followers, to pick up his ministry and do what he did. So in the section that we began last week, that's what we're studying. Jesus is preparing his people to take up the minister, his ministry after he has ascended to the Father and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And so Jesus then, one of the things we saw last week was that Jesus selected 12 individuals who would be his apostles. Now, we saw that Jesus went to the mountain to pray, and he prayed all night, and that he came down, and there was a group of disciples. It says, and out of this group of disciples, he chose 12 individuals, and those 12 individuals were going to be his apostles, his sent ones. And you can go back and listen to that message. It's on sermon.net. Um, you can access it through our website. But anyways, I, I won't spend a, a whole lot of time with that. In other words, one of the first things Jesus needed to do um, to prepare people to carry on his ministry after he is gone is to call those individuals who are going to um, be equipped for that task. So he, or, he begins organizing his disciples. So that's kind of where we've been. Here's where I hope to go today. He has uh, this large group of disciples. Out of this large group, there are 12 uh, specific individuals whom he is going to really spend a lot of time with. They are called the apostles. And um, 
what he's going to do today and, and on the sermon that he is going to preach today, it is a message to his disciples and it is a message of how to be a disciple. So somebody comes along, Jesus comes along and says, okay, you're followers of me. I am the rabbi, you're the, you're the students, I'm the, I am the, the master and you're the apprentice. Now, I want you to follow me. I want you to take up the ministry that I am going to, um, I'm going to leave you and probably one of your first questions might be, well, what does it mean to be a follower of you? What does it mean to be your student? What, what, does, it, what does all that mean? So today, by preview, Jesus is going to give a message to his disciples and tell them how to live as a disciple. In fact, this whole Sermon on the Mount is, how does a person live as a disciple? How does, and a disciple is just a follower. That's all the word means, is, is a follower. So how does one live as a follower of Jesus Christ? If I am a disciple of Jesus Christ, how do I live in that manner? And so Jesus, in this sermon, is going to begin teaching his people how to live as a disciple. And one of the things we're going to see, especially today, is that the present kingdom of God, the kingdom of God that is inaugurated by the presence of Jesus Christ, by the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that this kingdom that Jesus brings is... um, It's upside down from the way our culture is. It is going to reverse our perspective on things. It is uh, going to reverse our perspective on ethics. It will reverse our perspective on what is valuable in the world. And Jesus is beginning to train his disciples that if you are going to be my follower, as a follower of me, you need to realize that the world system and my kingdom are complete opposites. But what I'm going to call you to do is going to be quite a bit different than what society is going to call you to do. And so this is why we need to be trained. This is why we need to learn from Jesus. And so that's kind of where we're going to go in this particular passage of text. Are you with me so far? All right. Well, let me just deal with some preliminary matters because this is perhaps one of the most famous sermons that Jesus ever preached. All right. It is probably the greatest sermon ever. All right. If you want to say what's the greatest sermon ever preached in the history of mankind, I think you've got to put this one probably right there. Number one. Amen. Maybe some other sermon of Jesus perhaps is... Olivet Discourse, but I think Sermon on the Mount, number one, best sermon ever. One of the questions we need to ask, however, is when we look at this sermon, we can see numerous similarities between the the one that is recorded in the Gospel of Luke and the one that is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. And obviously there there, there are some very, very uh, certain similarities and so but then on the other hand there are some very clear differences between the two sermons so the question that one might ask is are they the same sermon or are they something different and while um, it's not 
hugely important that we come to a, a conclusion on this. It will affect the way we understand our text today. And so, because the, the similarities, it begins with the Beatitudes, blessed are you who are poor, you know, the whole blessing, blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are you. Um, th- those blessings, we see the Beatitudes, we see some very similar, um, some very, very similar teachings. So there's a lot of similarities between the two. But there's also some very distinct differences. For instance... Matthew says that Jesus went up on the mountain and he delivered this message. Luke tells us that he came down from the mountain to a level place. So some would say, well, see, on Matthew he went up the mountain and in Luke he came down the mountain. And there are some very distinct differences. In Matthew he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And in Luke he says, blessed are the poor. Not the poor in spirit, just blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And there are a number of differences and similarities uh, going, going on here. And so the question is, are these two? And, and quite often, many people say, well, you know, Jesus taught the same sermon in numerous places. That's not unusual. Sometimes preachers repeat themselves. Sometimes we dig out a sermon from a while back, and we, especially if it's a good one, this is a really good one, so it wouldn't be unusual for him to say, man, that one nailed it. Um, I'm going to give it again. Um, so that wouldn't be unusual. I, and I've always held to the idea, uh, traditionally I've held to the idea that these are two different sermons, but as I've kind of researched a little bit more, I, I think they're the same, and I think that the differences are not insurmountable. And like I said, maybe not a, a huge difference, but it will affect a little bit of how I approach this message, and that's why I wanted to cover this, because it will approach or it will have an effect on how we address some of the, the material in this sermon. And so I believe that this message is the same one that was recorded in Matthew. Um, and you know all of the gospel writers, they, you know, they may record the same event, but not include all of the same details. So um, Luke's, is very, Luke's account is very brief, probably 20 verses whereas Matthew's account is like three chapters it'll take you about 15 minutes to read Matthew's account and probably about two minutes to read Luke's account but I think um, because the gospel writers have different objectives and they're trying to communicate different things it's not unusual for one to give greater detail on an event and one to kind of uh, give more sparse details of the same event and I think they're the same so now that we've gotten that out of the way let's go ahead and read our text and, uh, and then spend some time looking at what Luke has to tell us. I'm going to begin with verse 17 of Luke chapter 6. It says, And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowds sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. 
for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Lord, we pray that you would bless the reading and the hearing of your word. Guide us now in your truth, for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, the first thing we see is Jesus is, uh, he's been all night in prayer. He's called uh, the, the 12 apostles. And he, there seems to be this large group of disciples. And they come down the mountain, probably to a flat place on the mountain, to a level place. And there, um, and there he is. And I think it's important for us to begin to look at who was present at this at this event, because his audience, Jesus is going to be preaching to a very specific audience, and I think it would be wise for us to consider who is his audience, who is present. And in Luke, what we hear is that people came from Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. And so Judea is kind of this whole region down here. Anyways, I know this is a little blurry, but here's the Dead Sea. Here's Jerusalem. Here's uh, the Sea of Galilee. The Jordan River runs down this way. Well, Jesus has been up in this northern area. This is the area of Galilee. This is where he's been teaching. Probably right here is Capernaum. If I can hold still, right there is Capernaum. That's kind of his home base. Um, So he spends a lot of time teaching there. And so it says people from Judea, which is this southern region down here, and from Jerusalem, specifically the capital city, also from Tyre, the seacoast, Tyre and Sidon. Um, And so people have come from all over, traveled many days to come and hear what Jesus has to say. Now, there's some question whether or not the people who came from Tyre and Sidon are actually Jews. It's quite possible that they're Gentiles. um, Because... um, um, some would say, well, only Jews from Tyre and Sidon came. But when we look at the Matthew account, we see that not only did people come from Judea and Jerusalem, but they came from the Decapolis, which is the ten cities over here. This is Gentile territory. And they also came from uh, a variety of uh, Gentile towns. And so here's, here's my point. Show you the map and get my little laser pointer up. Here's my point. The crowd that is listening to Jesus is a melting pot. It is a group of people from every walk of life, from every... I mean, you, uh, the Pharisees don't seem to let Jesus out of their sight. So we're going to, to uh, conclude that there are religious leaders. There are people who are obviously in dire physical need because they come to Jesus because they want to be healed. They, we have people who are impoverished. I'm sure we have people who are um, uh, from the upper strata, strata of the economic um, structure. We have people who are part of God's people as, as uh, uh, children of Abraham. We have Gentiles who are not part of God's um, chosen people. And we have this melting pot of people who come to listen to the Word of God. This is going to be impo- important for us because, see, at this point, Jesus is teaching His disciples that the ministry that He has inaugurated and that they're going to take over needs to extend beyond just the insiders. And Luke is really big on making certain... That Luke loves to talk about the poor and the downtrodden and the oppressed. Luke is big on that. And we see this here because the people who Jesus is now ministering to are not just the insiders, but the ministry is going out to those who are the 
the oppressed and the downtrodden and the broken and the miserable and the, the hurting and the suffering and the mourning. This is Jesus, who Jesus is going to. And this is kind of un- unusual because many of the religious elite in that day um, felt it good to minister to other religious elite. But those who were broken were kept at an arm's distance. And here Jesus is extending his ministry. And Luke, again, Luke makes a big deal of of this, that the ministry goes out beyond our borders, not just to our own little clique. And we can learn a lot from that, that our ministry needs to go, not just to those whom we're comfortable with in our churches, but to go out to those who are not like us. And we learn a little bit of why they came. They came, first of all, to hear Him. I find that interesting because, again, Luke finds that the teaching ministry of Jesus is His primary ministry. That's what Jesus does. Is he's a preacher. And we see Luke focusing on the, the preaching ministry of Jesus, that He went to the synagogues and He preached. And Luke is very fond of reminding us that Jesus is a preacher of the Word of God. He proclaimed the Kingdom of God has come. So that's the one thing. But they also came to be healed. And Luke puts a big emphasis in this passage on those with unclean spirits or those who are oppressed by the devil. And I think that this is important. First of all, it says that Jesus healed pretty much all, everybody. I think regardless of what kind of disease or what kind of ailment they had, he healed them all. But Luke tends to give special attention to those with unclean spirits. In other words, when the Son of God has come and is incarnate on the earth, and not only does he come to preach the gospel, but he has come to destroy the works of the devil, which we read in John, in, in 1 John, that he has bound the strong man and he destroys the work of the devil and he releases that bondage. And so the bondage that comes through the powers of hell Jesus has overcome and so we see this big group of people who has come to hear him, they come from all walks of life they come to hear him preach and also to be healed so that's that's the setting of, of what's going on and now let's look at the sermon that Jesus preaches and we should note at the very beginning in verse 20 and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said note this, this is very important who's his audience? He lifted up his eyes on his disciples. He is now teaching to his disciples I think this is not just to the twelve But to all of his disciples, remember there's a large group of people um, who are called his disciples and he is talking now to his disciples. Not everybody in this group. I think there are three groups of people here. There are those, there are the twelve. There is a larger group of his disciples and then there is another larger group that is not his disciples. Perhaps they haven't made a decision to follow him. Maybe they even despise him. But we see these, these groups now And Jesus is now proclaiming this message to his disciple. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, this message is for you. If you are wondering today, I don't know. I'm more into I'd like to know a little bit more about this Jesus character and what he has to say. I don't know if I want to be a disciple or not. There would be that group that Jesus is also, I mean, this is going to go out and this will be a good Primer on what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So those who are searching and those wondering, they're going to learn what it means to be a disciple. 
but it is directed towards his followers. So he lifted up his eyes on his disciples, and this is what he says. Let me just, I don't want to exclude this this quote that's in your notes. Um, Because I think it's important as we set the stage here. Um, Leon Morris in his commentary on the book of Luke said this, that together with the following woes, the, the Beatitudes, the blessings and the woes, together with the following woes, these Beatitudes make a mockery of the world's value. They exalt what the world despises and reject what the world admires because Jesus is now going to teach his disciples that you are going to live a countercultural life. That, you are, that when you become a follower of me, the thing that the world values is going to ha- hold is not going to hold you and the thing that holds you is going to be despised by the world. That's the first thing you need to understand as a disciple of mine. Jesus is saying is that all of the value and all of the shiny things of this world while um, they do not hold the same value as the world holds them. And this is where he's going to go. And he begins by saying, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. All right. If you're visiting with us today, um, from time to time, we need to deal with some technical matters. And uh, this is one of those issues where I think we need to deal with some technical issues. And so I'm going to get all geeky on you, okay? So we, we need to deal with some grammar. Uh, but I think it's really important. All right? I don't want to bore you or turn you off or say I don't get it. But, but I think there's some really, really important things here as we look at this first beatitude. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Because it's a rather unique beatitude. It's a rather unique blessing. And let me make the statement and then I'll unpack it for you. That both the person and the promise are in the present tense. What I mean by that is blessed are you Because yours is the kingdom of heaven. You right now, blessed are you disciples, right now, because right now, the kingdom of God is yours. The reason I bring that up is when you read the other Beatitudes here, it's not the same. It is, blessed are you who hunger now, present person in the present, for yours, for you will be comforted. Do you see what I'm saying? That... Here, blessed are the poor, the the person and the promise is in the present tense. But the rest of the Beatitudes have the person in the present tense and the promise in the future. It's a future promise. Are we good here? Are we all right? So, so right now, you are blessed. Blessed are the poor right now because yours right now is the kingdom of heaven. This is in contrast to blessed are you who hunger now, who in the future will be fed. I think this is important. And the reason I think that we kind of look at this is that Jesus is setting the stage um, for the following blessings that have a future promise. Right now, he's saying the kingdom is yours. Right now, the kingdom is yours. Why is this important? Because if the kingdom is right now, belongs to 
Let's just say, if I can say, right now the kingdom belongs to me. If right now I am a kingdom citizen. If right now I am a child of the Most High God. If that is the case, that regardless of the suffering or the trials that happen down the road, I know and can be certain that as a kingdom citizen, the promises of that kingdom are assured to me. Are, are, do you see where Jesus I think this is where Jesus is going saying because you're a citizen of the kingdom even if you are to suffer hunger and mourning now my promises are absolute yes and amen and you will be comforted you will be fed you will break forth in laughter while you may not do it now because you are presently a kingdom citizen you can take it to the bank that I will fulfill all of my good promises in you. Even if you are enduring temporary and light affliction in the future, I guarantee you will receive the blessings of my kingdom because you are now, currently, right now, a kingdom citizen. You are right now a child of God. I think that's the idea. So, in other words, these beatitudes are an encouragement to believers that no matter what happens in this world... You can endure and you can stand strong and you can serve God in faithfulness and truthfulness and in certainty that everything He has promised you will come to pass and it is worth whatever trial or challenge you are enduring. This is what He is saying to His disciples. So that's, that's my, my thinking on that. So now we're done with the grammar geek section and we need to describe ourselves and then we need to define ourselves. Blessed are the poor... For you will receive, for yours is the kingdom of God. So then we have to ask ourselves, well then, who are the poor? Well, we could easily say, well, that's a simple, that's, there's a simple answer to that. Anybody who doesn't have a lot of money, they're the poor. And we have to ask ourselves another question, if that's the case. I would ask myself, does being poor, does a lack of socioeconomic status guarantee one's favor with God. In other words, does God love me simply because I don't have a lot of the world's goods? And that wouldn't fit with much of Scripture. We would have trouble with that. Simply because I don't have much money, therefore, I mean, I may be wicked, I may be cheating uh, my neighbor, and I may be coveting his goods, and I may even be stealing from him, but because I don't have anything... God has favor upon me. I, I don't know where, if that's where Jesus is, is going here. However, we need to deal with this because it is a... I don't know if I want to say common, but it is a, it is a widely held belief in, in, in a type of theology called liberation theology and, and we see it um, big especially from poor countries began in Latin America but we see it even in America um, that simply to be an oppressed simply by being oppressed means that you have favor with God who cares if you believe in Jesus Christ? Who cares how you live? The fact that you are oppressed means that God has favor on you. And there's, there is a whole teaching out there on that. And I won't get into a whole lot of... Um, 
uh, details on that, but it comes from passages like this. Blessed are the poor. So does the deprived socioeconomic status guarantee one's salvation? To which I would say that doesn't mesh with the rest of the Bible. So then what is Luke saying? If that's not the case, then what does this mean? Well, let's let Scripture interpret Scripture. How about that? So, we see this same word. <coughs> we see the same word used back in chapter 4, verse 18, where Jesus is actually quoting from Isaiah. And we see this exact same word used. And, and this is what Jesus said. This is uh, another sermon that he preached. This is his first sermon. It was an awesome one, too. Um, And he said this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me, listen to this, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. In other words, what has God called me to do? He has called me to preach the gospel to whom? The poor. Not he has called me to go and feed the poor. I'm not saying that we're not to feed the poor. I'm just saying how Luke is using this term, and we're trying to interpret this passage by using scripture to interpret scripture. God has called me to preach the gospel to the poor which would seem, and that's a quote out of Isaiah, which would seem rather sad if the poor were simply those who had an economic need and all Jesus does is, well, I'll just preach to you the gospel, but I won't bother feeding you. See, this has to be more than just merely an economic use of the term poor. And, for instance, let's, uh, let's continue as we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Let's go over to Psalm chapter 40, verse 17. And uh, we can see this. This is from David. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me, for you are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Then Psalm 86, 1. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Psalm 109, 22. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is stricken within me. A couple of things here. These are all songs written by David. And David was not considered a poor man. Economically. And yet here he is. I'm poor and needy. But we also hear him say, I am poor and needy. My heart is stricken within me. There's something broken in me. There's some, something that the, the poorness isn't that I don't have enough money. The poorness is that I am lacking something else. I'm not denying the economic sense. I'm saying that we need to broaden the idea of the economic sense. For instance, Matthew in chapter 5, verse 3, uh, when, when Jesus, in, in his recording of this, says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. That is, those who have, who have absolutely no claim upon God, those who have nothing to merit God's favor, those who might be considered by the world outcasts and nobodies and spiritual zeros, Jesus says to those people, you who make have no claim upon God, those who have no claim upon any righteousness, those of you who are considered utter and complete outcasts, those of you who have nothing by which you might come before God and say, look at me, look what I've done. You, you are blessed. Because you, to you then, belongs 
the kingdom of heaven. And so the poor, I think when we look at Matthew's account, when we look at how scripture interprets this term, we realize that this could be, certainly could be those who are low on the economic standing, but more but also include those who recognize that they have a spiritual poverty that drives them to depend upon God. And so they show up at God's foot, they show up in the presence of God, and they got nothing. Here I am, God. And what I have to offer you is nothing but brokenness. Nothing but vile, putrid, sinful me person who has been told that I have no claim upon you, that I am an outcast, that you would want to have nothing to do with me, and here I am, God, can I rely upon you to have mercy upon me? Blessed are you. My kingdom is yours. That's, I think, where um, Luke is, is taking us. This is where Jesus is, is taking us. Blessed are you. who are confused. Blessed are you who are AIDS infected. Blessed are you who are wrestling with your gender identity. Blessed are you when you come before God and you say, I got nothing. I'm wrestling with these things and everybody told me that I, that God would have nothing to do with me. But I'm just going to throw myself at you, Lord God, and say, here I am. Blessed my kingdom's open to people like you. That's who is welcome. And this is said to this melting pot. This group of people who may, while there might be a number of spiritual elites there, there are a lot of broken, non-believing people who've been told all their lives, you have no claim on God, and Jesus is now saying, oh, the kingdom of heaven is open to people like you. Come on in. Blessed are you. Daryl Bach in his very fine commentary on the book of Luke Luke says this, he says thus a paraphrase of this beatitude would read, blessed are you materially poor who nonetheless look to God and his promise for the kingdom of God is yours I thought that was pretty good and so blessed are you and then I'm just going to jump forward a few verses woe to you who are rich Woe to you who are rich. Basically, he says, you've received payment in full. So we have to decide, ask ourselves, who are the rich? Well, first of all, we need to realize that Luke is very hard on the, the economically wealthy people. Luke's very hard on them. And Luke is very generous towards the economically poor. And he often criticizes the rich, but in Luke, he also doesn't exclude the rich as people who are part of the kingdom of God. For instance, Zacchaeus, he speaks very highly of. And Joseph of Arimathea, he speaks very highly of. And Nicodemus, he speaks very highly of. And so he shows that the rich are not excluded from the blessings of the kingdom. And so we can't just simply say, if you have money, you're excluded, and if you don't have money, you're included, because it is those who have no claim upon God whom Jesus is receiving, and those who think because of their great wealth or their own self-satisfaction that they have 
They have it all wrapped up. What is condemned here is a misplaced focus on this life and its possessions without concern for God and his people. In other words, well, I got everything I need, and so I guess God has blessed me, but I do not give honor to him, nor do I give honor to his people. And so, therefore, Jesus is saying, you've received payment in full. I owe you nothing. Because you've gotten everything. So, paid in full, done. You stand before God and say, well, let me into your kingdom. It's like, oh, you've been paid in full. Done deal. The one who is poor and miserable and blind says, Lord, I have no merit on which I can come other than Christ and Christ alone. Ah, yeah. My kingdom's open to you. So woe to those who are rich. Who are rich. That what, what's going on here is this reversal of the world's perspective. It is a reversal of the world's values. This is where Jesus is going in these Beatitudes. I'm going to reverse everything. The kingdom of God runs mm, counter to the kingdoms of this world. Then he goes on and he says, um, Blessed are you who are hungry and blessed are you who weep. Blessed are you who are hungry. Notice this. Blessed are you who are hungry now for you shall, future tense, be satisfied. You have... Blessed are the the hungry now. Remember, this is a present condition with a future promise. Right now, you are blessed because in the future, you will receive a promise. Why can you be certain you will receive a promise in the future? Because right right now, you are a kingdom citizen. Blessed are the poor because right now, you are yours is the kingdom of God. And if you hunger now, I can guarantee you that in the future you will be satisfied. Why? Because that's the way I treat kingdom citizens. And so the first beatitude with its present promise gives strength to the disciple to bear under the trials of this world. And so if you're hungry now, you will be satisfied. Matthew adds those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so there's both this economic as well as religious overtones that... Blessed are you who hunger now. Not just those of you who hunger because you don't have food, but you hunger over righteousness. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. So there is both economic and religious overtones in this passage. Um, Perhaps Luke chapter 16, verses 20 through 22, provide us a good example of this. And this is in the, the, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, where it says... And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And so the poor man who was hungering um, when he died was carried away and was uh, fed and well taken care of. But again... This is a reversal. You who are pitied by the world will receive satisfaction. How do I, can I guarantee that you will receive satisfaction in the, in the future? Absolutely. Why? Because you are a citizen already right now, a citizen of the kingdom of God. So there is this reversal. 
There's also a woe. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Again, we probably see a nice parallel in Isaiah chapter 65, verses 13 and following. It says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, my servant shall eat, but you will be hungry. Behold, my servant shall drink, but you will be thirsty. Behold, my servant shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servant shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart, and you shall wail for breaking of spirit. And so you can almost say this is Isaiah's Beatitudes. My servants will rejoice, even though they endure a temporary difficulty. So blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. And blessed are you who mourn now. Those who mourn are those who have broken hearts. And I just think about this crowd that Jesus is dealing with. And I wonder about the brokenness that's in this crowd. I wonder what hurts are represented. Well, we know that there were people who have physical ailments and spiritual ailments and were certainly hurting. I wonder how many of them, you know, I mean, many of them were living under a very oppressive governmental rule. Some of them may have lived in very oppressive households. I wonder how many of them have been violated, how many of them have been um, beaten. I wonder how many of them have been used and abused and thrown away as nothing. In this world you have tribulation, but I've overcome this world. And in my kingdom, you will be comforted. In my kingdom... You will not be an outcast. In my kingdom, you will not be violated. In my kingdom, you will not be beaten. In my kingdom, none of that is going to happen. In my kingdom, you will not be shunned. In my kingdom, these things will not happen, but rather you will be comforted. In my kingdom. So you are blessed now, because as my kingdom citizen, when I bring in the fulfillment of my kingdom, all of these things will will be put away and for eternity you will be comforted. Yes, today and for temporary you are suffering and you are mourning. But eternally I will comfort you. Woe to you. Woe to those who are laughing. I don't think... Jesus is talking about some sort of woe to those who are jovial or have a good sense of humor, but rather those who have a worldly sense of ease and self-satisfaction. In other words, I, I believe that God is the most... And I think David talked about this a while ago. I think God is the most joyful being in the universe. So I don't think that... And, and, And we're told to sing for joy and to be joyful. And to be merry. And laughing is certainly not the issue. That Jesus is not saying, well, if you laugh, then you're woe to you. Or if you tell a joke. The one who may be 
at ease and self-satisfied. Woe to you. Again, we see a reversal. And finally, blessed are you when you are hated. And woe to you when you are loved. Blessed are you when rejected for the cause of Christ. Notice rejected for what? The cause of Christ. The name of Christ. I want you to note there are four adjectives. Blessed are they when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you, and when they spurn your name as evil on the account of the Son of Man. In that day, rejoice. Those three, four things, those who hate you, this is, the, this is opposition for unpopular positions. They hate you because you hold to an unpopular position. In other words, you hold to the truth of the Son of God, which is always contrary to the world. So we shouldn't be surprised when the world despises the things of God. And you're hated for it. Blessed are you. Blessed are you when you are ostracized, literally socially excluded, excommunicated would be a word. In other words, when society excommunicates you or boycotts you, blessed are you. Of course, we saw that all quite often in the book of Revelation, didn't we? People were excommunicated. They were boycotted. They could not earn a trade or earn a living. Blessed are you. Blessed are you when you are insulted. That is slandered. shouldn't be surprised. Um, early Christians were accused of being cannibals. Not only that, but I just... Some friends of ours who are, have been in missionaries in Taiwan for years and years and years, like 30 years. I guess when they first went there, the, the village said, oh, those, those Christians, they're cannibals, and all they want to do is get your children, and they're going to kill them and eat them. It's 30 years ago in Taiwan. No, not Taiwan. Where are they at? Hmm? Thailand. Thank you. Thailand. Blessed are you, and by the way, now they have, they've reached thousands for the gospel. Not eaten one child. <laughs> and they are well loved. Blessed are you when you are slandered. Blessed are you when you are treated as evil. Because when you do good in the eyes of God and it runs countercultural with the way things are in this world, people will call good evil and evil good. And so when you are doing good and it is called evil, blessed are you. Be glad, rejoice. These present challenges um, promise a great reward. In fact, you are not alone. The prophets of old did the same thing, and they were mistreated as well. Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and all of these people and Ezekiel, all of these people were treated poorly for the name of God. And so, but they were right on, and God had A great reward. Your reward is great in heaven. For so their prophets, or the, so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you when men speak well of you. This doesn't mean that simply you do a job well done and people say, "Hey, good job, way, way to go. I appreciate your hard work." This is um, something beyond that. This is basically you're aligning yourself with the false prophets. You're teaching something that will tickle ears, just like the false prophets did. When you're saying something just to build up a crowd and make people feel good about themselves. False prophets were loved. 
Woe to you. Quick summary here. These words should, are not to be read as a condemnation, that as you are not blessed until you, all, until you fulfill this criteria perfectly, until you're, you're poor and you're mourning and you're not laughing and you're hungry, then that's the only time these things apply to you. But rather, these are words of encouragement that you who believe in Jesus, even if you are poor, even if you are hungry, even if you are mistreated, that you who believe in Jesus, in spite of these natural difficulties, you are the blessed ones because the kingdom of God is yours and in his kingdom all of his blessings and all of his promises will be fulfilled. And so this is the direction Jesus is going. He is teaching his people how to be disciples. And being a disciple means perhaps looking at the things the world values and holding them with an open hand and saying, I don't know if I value them to the same degree. I'll close with this. Folks, we we live in an upside-down world. We live in a world where paupers ride in limousines. We live in a world where royalty walk in rags and we live in a world where righteousness is mocked and unrighteousness is exalted. We live in a world where paupers ride in limousines. We see people who make millions, tens of millions of dollars a year. The rich and the famous and they are utterly and completely bankrupt. Paupers riding in limousines. Meanwhile, Men and women who love the Lord Jesus Christ and are suffering for the cause of Christ are royalty. It's an upside down world. We live in a world where righteousness is mocked. We had a big parade yesterday. A million women's mark, a million women's honor. I'm, I was all for it, except for the fact that they, vi- they silenced the voice of those who held to a pro-life position. If you believe that babies ought not to be murdered in the womb, you were spit upon and mocked upon. We live in an, in an upside-down world. And all my leftist friends praised it and loved it, and I loved it as, insofar as, to a certain degree, when you start mocking and despising what is right. We live in an upside down world. Jesus recognizes that we live in an upside down world and he's training his disciples to live in that upside down world. You have to realize that the things you value are going to be treated as profane and the things you think are profane will be valued in you as my disciples are going to have to live in that world. And blessed are you. I will tell you this, if this is all there is, then you need to get it now. If this world is all there is, you need to get it now. You are not blessed if you are poor. You are not blessed if you mourn. You are not. None of those things are blessings. But if there is a kingdom of heaven and it is an eternal kingdom, then it is worth every every hardship, every trial, every discomfort that, that can be thrown at you because... God's promises will be fulfilled. And so, with that, I would just like to, before we close...